I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob Who used to steal, gamble, and rob He thought he was the smartest guy in town But I found out last Monday That Bob got locked up Sunday They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, the podcast that makes history come alive. This two-part story tells the incredible true story of two of the FBI's most wanted criminals, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, two personality-enriched lowlifes who sought and received all the attention the newspapers in the 1930s could give them as they went on a love-fueled crime spree through the American South and Midwest, during the heights of the American Depression. The two became legendary quickly in a time and place where many people lived short and hard lives, distrusting authority of all types and applauding whenever the bad guys scored one. In short, Bonnie and Clyde had as many friends as they had enemies. Their spree ended in a hail of shotgun and rifle blasts, but not before they achieved the one thing they most desired, fame. The first episode of this two-part series is titled the Incredible True Story of Bonnie and Clyde, Part 1, Born to Die. And you'll need to buckle your seatbelts for this one as we take you to a lonely road in rural Louisiana to sort of set the mood. If you ever want to get a real look at Bonnie and Clyde's American South, take Route 20 from Atlanta to Dallas. The scenery hasn't changed much. When you get way out there in the boonies of western Louisiana, and you know nightfall is coming in a few hours, and you feel like taking on a strange experience, take 154 south past Gibbs Land about two and a half miles and watch for 154 to take a turn right, and then follow that another five and a half miles. You'll see a monument on your right. It's mostly woods, so drive slow, because you won't want to linger there long. They say the ghosts of Bonnie and Clyde often return to find their car, and you don't want them getting in yours. If it's near dark, keep your wits about you. Get out and read the monument. Then for a moment, try to picture just what happened back here in these pine woods and why the hair on the back of your neck is probably standing up right about now. Keep in mind the locals back in the 30s, when all this went down, thought Bonnie and Clyde were heroes. Times were tough and life was hard. And to many of the backwoods locals, anyone who stood up to Johnny Law and the establishment was someone to be respected. The James Gang had received the same kind of respect not too many years before, and in the same region. Maybe that's why the first gravestone-like monument here didn't have many good things to say about the law enforcement officers that ambushed Bonnie and Clyde's car that day. It was still standing there, heavily vandalized, a few years ago, and showing the marks of a variety of bullet holes and spray paint, telling lawmen, basically, where to get off. But to anyone who respected the order of law, Bonnie and Clyde were cold, ruthless killers who got an extra kick out of reading the headlines they were making as they left a trail of dead bodies and robberies through a large swath of the South in the early 30s. Now take just a moment for a coffee back inside your car or truck and listen for the sound of Clyde's V8 Ford coming around that turn while we play this message from one of our sponsors. I'm home at morning, face full of brown. I know about that, baby. You've been running around. You made me love you. And you made me 
1967 movie mixed elements of comedy together with fact, not that there was anything comedic about what they did. They killed innocent people. They stole other people's money and possessions. They pictured themselves as celebrities and sought every bit of attention they could from the newspapers. Contrary to legend, they spent most of the few years they had on the run, living on adrenaline and little else, and using the small amounts of money they stole to eat and buy shelter. When the killing became too much for the public to stomach, the clamor from their once supportive fans and press to bring them to justice delivered them to a fast and gruesome end. This is their story. Clyde Chestnut Bud Barrow was the son of a poor farmer in Ellis County, Texas, near Toleco, a town just southeast of Dallas. By the early 20s, the family of nine began moving piecemeal to the slums of West Dallas, living under a wagon until they were able to save up enough to buy a tent. Clyde's great love was music. He had an old guitar at the farm and taught himself how to play it, as well as a saxophone, but before he could do anything with either instrument, he joined forces with his older brother, Buck, and one of his shady friends, and started stealing cars. About the time Clyde was hot-wiring cars and getting away with nickel-dime thefts, Bonnie Parker, a year younger than Clyde, was growing up in Rowena, Texas, southwest of Dallas. When her father died, mother moved them to an industrial section of West Dallas known as Cement City. Bonnie was described as petite at 4 foot 11 inches attractive, and she loved music, the stage, poetry, and writing. She performed in school pageants and talent shows, singing Broadway hits or country favorites. She told all her friends that they would see her name in lights one day, and she imagined herself as a movie actress. Knowing what would become of both, you can only shake your head and wonder how it all could have gone so wrong. In her sophomore year of high school, Bonnie made a choice that would start her on the wrong road for the rest of her short life when she met and married Roy Thornton in 1926, six days before his 16th birthday. Their marriage, however, was short-lived, as Roy, who would soon find his way to prison, was rarely home and was having constant brushes with the law. By January of 1929, they had seen each other for the last time, and Bonnie moved back in with her mother and began waitressing in a cafe in Dallas. One of her regular customers was a man named Ted Hinton, then a postal worker who would later join the Dallas Sheriff's Department in 1932. In her diary that she kept at that time, Bonnie would write of her loneliness and her love of talking pictures. As fate would have it, Hinton was one of the posse members who participated in the fatal ambush of Bonnie and Clyde, just two short years later. We'll be using portions of a rare interview with Floyd Hamilton, Ray Hamilton's brother, and the last surviving member of the Barrow Gang, to illustrate the story as we go forward. 
Floyd, a prominent member of the FBI's most wanted list, was in prison when Bonnie and Clyde met their end. He also achieved notoriety as one of the few who escaped Alcatraz, although it was short-lived. He made it to the river just outside the fence, but was swept under a cave in the bank. And after two exhausting days trying to hang on there, he finally climbed back up to the waiting guards. He did manage to turn his life around in prison and earned a pardon from President Kennedy in 1963. As we said before, Clyde was busy getting in scrapes with the law about the time Bonnie married. His first arrest coming in late 1926 when police nabbed him for failing to return a rental car. His second arrest came when he and brother Buck were caught with stolen turkeys. Small-time stuff, careless mistakes, while he was busy working honest jobs in the daytime and cracking safes and robbing stores at night to augment his meager hourly income. Clyde was just beginning his career in crime. And here's a little more information about Clyde and Bonnie from that interview with Floyd Hamilton. But first, I'd like to establish Mr. Hamilton's uh, association with Bonnie and Clyde, with the Barrow Gang. Floyd, uh, you were released from prison when? July the 2nd, 1958. 1958. And how long were you in prison? Approximately 20 years. 20 years. What prisons were these? Leavenworth, Alcatraz, and Texas. How many years did you spend in Alcatraz? Twelve years and about 70, 80 days. And what was this for? Bank robbery and transporting stolen cars across state line. What state lines were involved? Well, several state lines. See, they're all cases were transferred to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and there where I was tried. Mm -hmm. So in 1938, you went to prison. At that time, prior to that time, you were the number one most wanted criminal in the United States. Is that true? So I was classified by the federal FBI as public enemy number one. Uh, it's true that you were also the brother of Raymond Hamilton. Is yes, that right? that's right. Uh, what happened to Raymond? Raymond was executed by the state in 1935. 1935? Yes. And what was this for? Well, on escape, when Clyde and Bonnie liberated him from East Ham Prison, an officer was killed. An officer was killed? Yes. And Raymond was tried for this? He wasn't tried for the murder. He was tried for being a principal in the planning of the break. And he was found guilty and yes. executed? Now, Raymond was at often, or several times during his career, was a member of the Barrow Gang. Is that right? Yes. In fact, uh, when he was a youngster, he was a friend of Clyde Barrow's. Is yes. that right, a teenager? And I believe you said you knew Bonnie when she was still in grade school. Yes. When was that? Well, I moved to Dallas in 1920, and I went to the school, Cement City School, where she attended and not, uh, during the part of 1921 and 22. This was before you quit school? Yes. And you lived in what was then called West Dallas, is that right? Well, it wasn't part of the city then. It was county but it's what is called West Dallas now. Describe West Dallas to me. Well, it's a, more or less a poor district, slum district. And this was during the Depression, is yes. that right? Yes, and during that time, there was approximately 5,000 people lived there. Now, I think it's about 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was the home of both Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Yes. See, Clyde and Bonnie, as including myself, moved to Dallas during the 20s and we all moved in West Dallas. Now, when did you know that your brother Raymond and Clyde were engaged in criminal activities? In 1932. In 1932. Uh, Clyde had already been in prison prior to that time. Yes, he was on a 
Well, I suppose he served two years in prison on a 14-year sentence, so he had a approximate 12-year parole. You saw your brother and Clyde and Bonnie quite often, is that right? Yes. And during 1932 to 1934, when Clyde and Bonnie were desperados, uh, you had contact with them yes. continuously. Yes, Not continuously, but uh, continually, sometimes yes. it'd be a week or two or a month in between meets. Where would you meet them? On country roads surrounding Dallas. What was your purpose in meeting them there? Well, mostly to take Miss Parker and Miss Barrow and my mother out to meet them. To visit with. Did you take them food or money? Or? Oh, yes. I took them food and also drained gasoline out of my car and put in their tank. You mean Clyde was uh, not a very successful bank robber or robber? No, I wouldn't say he was. They were often without money? Yes. Now, tell us about Bonnie. Uh, was she uh, an integral part of the gang? Well, she was a continuous part of it because mm -hmm. Clyde and Bonnie and Ray all begin their crime career together. Were Clyde and Bonnie sweethearts? Yes. They were. Mm -hmm. uh, did she participate in the robberies and the killings? Only by being present. She, uh, as far as you know, did she ever kill anyone? No. She did not? No. Did they tell you about their robberies and their killings when, uh, when you met them on these country roads? Well, after uh, each crime was committed, gun battle or what you might call it, uh, run in with the law, well, we would question them, and they would tell us the, their, other words, their side of the story. And no one ever said to you that Bonnie uh, participated in... On January 5th, 1930, Bonnie Parker met Clyde Barrow at the home of Clyde's friend Clarence Clay at 105 Herbert Street in the Oak Cliff neighborhood of West Dallas. Parker was out of work and was staying with a female friend to assist her with her broken arm. Barrow dropped by the girl's house while Parker was in the kitchen making hot chocolate. When they met, both were smitten immediately. Most historians believe Parker joined Barrow because she was in love. She would have only a few months with him before he was arrested and sent to prison, but she had found her man and remained a loyal companion to him to the end, which was coming sooner than she ever would have imagined. By April of 1930, Clyde had finally blundered his way into more trouble, and that landed him as a spring chicken to be plucked at Easton Prison Farm, and whatever good might have existed in Clyde Barrow when he went in was totally extinguished inside. While there, Barrow used a lead pipe to crush the skull of another inmate, Ed Crowder, who was sexually assaulting Barrow on a regular basis, and Barrow was then saved from a life sentence by another prisoner, a lifer, who took the blame for the killing. At one point, Bonnie was able to smuggle a weapon into Clyde, and he escaped but was quickly recaptured. Desperate to get out and rejoin Bonnie, Barrow then talked another inmate into chopping off two of his toes in order to excuse him from working hard labor in the fields, a decision that would saddle him with a limp for the remainder of his life. Irony struck when, six days after he had his toes severed, his mother petitioned for and secured his release. It was February 2nd, 1932, and if ever a man had a chance to turn his life around, Clyde was looking at his, but he wanted no part of that. When he walked out of Eastham, he was a changed man, a hardened and bitter criminal. His sister Marie was quoted to have said, Something awful sure must have happened to him in prison, because he wasn't the same person when he got out. A fellow inmate, Ralph Fultz, said he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. 
Barrow immediately set about to make a name for himself and make fools of the system that had done this to him. Together with a friend in crime just mentioned named Ralph Fultz, Barrow began to put together a rotating group of associates. He chose smaller jobs, robbing grocery stores and gas stations, at a rate far outpacing the 10 or so bank robberies attributed to him and the Barrow gang. The goal, incredibly, was to put together enough money to launch a raid on Easton Prison. His favorite weapon was the M1918 Browning Automatic Rifle, also called a BAR. According to author John Neal Phillips, Barrow's goal in life was not to gain fame or fortune from robbing banks, but to seek revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuses he suffered while serving time. On April 19, 1932, Bonnie and Clyde's partner, Fultz, were involved in a failed hardware store robbery in Kaufman, Texas, where they were trying to steal firearms for the planned raid. Both were convicted and jailed, but Bonnie Parker was released in a few months after a grand jury failed to indict her. Fultz ended up serving time and never rejoined the gang. Two weeks after Bonnie's arrest, Clyde was spotted as the driver in a robbery in Hillsdale, Texas, during which the store's owner, J.N. Butcher, was shot and killed. The victim's wife identified Barrow as one of the shooters, and now he was wanted for murder. On June 17th, Bonnie was released and quickly was reunited with Clyde. She would miss Clyde's next string of killings, however, in August of 1932, while she was visiting her mother in Dallas, who would no doubt have been seeing the headlines of Clyde's murders. On August 5th, Clyde Barrow, Raymond Hamilton, and Ross Dyer were drinking alcohol at a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma, when Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and his deputy, Eugene C. Moore, approached them in the parking lot. Barrow and Hamilton opened fire, killing the deputy and gravely wounding the sheriff. This was the first time Barrow and his gang had killed a lawman. Soon, they would reach a total of nine. On October 11th, they allegedly killed Howard Hall at his store during a robbery in Sherman, Texas. To feel Floyd to be a desperado, to know that the police have orders to shoot you down on sight. It's the most miserable life that a man could live. You lived this life in the same way that Bonnie and Clyde did. Yes, I practically lived in the automobile, day and night. Were you afraid? Yes, I was afraid. Why do you think that uh, Clyde killed so many officers? Well, that wouldn't be a simple answer to a question to answer. However, I think it was through fear fear and disrespect that he was afraid of being caught and linger in the death chamber uh, house. Do you think he was afraid of being executed? Yes, being executed or W.D. Jones had been a friend of the Barrow family since childhood. Only 16 years old on Christmas Eve 1932, he persuaded Barrow to let him join the pair and leave Dallas with them that night. The next day, Jones was initiated when he and Barrow killed Doyle Johnson a young family man, while stealing his car in Temple, Texas. Less than two weeks later, on January 6, 1933, Barrow killed Tarrant County Deputy Sheriff Malcolm Davis when he, Bonnie Parker, and Jones wandered into a police trap set for another criminal. The total murdered by the gang since April now was five. It is interesting to note that before 1934, the FBI did not investigate interstate killing sprees. That was left up to each state's authorities, and Clyde was doing his best to commit his crimes near state lines where he could escape pursuit by crossing the state line. 
This is exactly why the gang chose a hideout in Joplin, Missouri, just a few minutes' drive from the borders of both Oklahoma and Kansas, if you check the map. They were living in a garage apartment and busy raising hell in Joplin, Missouri, when the law came to get them, suspecting at the time that they were a gang of bootleggers. On March 22, 1933, Buck Barrow, Clyde's brother, was granted a full pardon and released from prison. Within days, he and his wife, Blanche, had set up housekeeping with Clyde, Bonnie Parker, and W.D. Jones in a temporary hideout at 3347 and a half Oak Ridge Drive in Joplin, Missouri. According to family sources, Buck and Blanche were only there to visit. They tried to persuade Clyde to surrender to law enforcement, but that didn't work, and Buck and Blanche became a part of the gang. Bonnie and Clyde's next brush with the law arose from their generally suspicious and conspicuous behavior. At that new address, the group ran loud, alcohol-fueled card games late into the night in an otherwise quiet neighborhood. We bought a case of beer a day, Blanche would later recall. The men came and went noisily at all hours, and Clyde discharged a BAR in the apartment while cleaning it. No neighbors went to the house, but one did report suspicions to the Joplin Police Department. The lawmen assembled a five-man force in two cars on April 13th to confront what they suspected were bootleggers living in the garage apartment. Though taken by surprise, Clyde was noted for remaining cool under fire. He, Jones, and Buck quickly killed Detective McGinnis and fatally wounded Constable Harriman. During the escape from the apartment, Bonnie Parker laid down covering fire with her BAR, forcing Highway Patrol Sergeant G.B. Kaler to duck behind a large oak tree while 30 caliber bullets struck the other side, forcing wood splinters into the sergeant's face. Parker got into the car with the others. They slowed enough to pull in Blanche Barrow from the street, where she was pursuing her dog, Snowball. If you've ever seen the movie, which tends to romanticize Bonnie and Clyde a bit much, you'll remember the scene of Blanche chasing her dog, which had bolted during their effort to escape, down the street. That, according to written history, was accurate. Crazy things happen in real life that one would think is the product of overzealous scriptwriters, but in this case, that was the picture, as Bonnie and Clyde, along with the Barrows, made their escape, while two officers of the law lay dead and dying behind them at the rental property. The surviving officers later testified that their side had fired only 14 rounds in the conflict, but one hit Jones on the side, one struck Clyde and was deflected by his suit coat button, and one grazed Buck after ricocheting off a wall. It was here in Joplin that police found rolls of undeveloped film that soon made it to the newspapers and made Bonnie and Clyde nationwide celebrities, their dream come true, with one picture showing Bonnie, cigar and teeth, holding a gun, one leg perched on the front bumper of their stolen car, and another picture showing her arresting Clyde. Faye Dunaway, who played Bonnie Parker in the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde, opposite Warren Beatty and Gene Hackman, cemented her claim to acting fame with the publicity shots that mirrored the famous photographs. Gene Wilder and Evans Evans played hapless kidnap victims Undertaker H.D. Darby and his acquaintance Sophia Stone, who, on April 27, 1933, were carjacked near Ruston, Louisiana by the Barrows Gang. And we'll get to that story in a minute. The group escaped the police at Joplin, but left behind most of their possessions at the apartment. Items included Buck and Blanche's marriage license, 
Buck's three-week-old parole papers, a large arsenal of weapons, a handwritten poem by Bonnie, and a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. The film was developed at the Joplin Globe and yielded many now-famous photos of Barrow, Parker, and Jones clowning and pointing weapons at one another. When the poem and the photos, including one of Parker clenching a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand, went out on the newly installed newswire, the obscure five criminals from Dallas became front-page news across America as the Barrow Gang. The poem, Story of Suicide Sal, which Bonnie wrote while in prison, and which eerily predicts how she would die in a hail of gunfire, was an apparent backstory. And here's how the story of Suicide Sal reads. We each of us have a good alibi for being down here in the joint, but few of them really are justified if you get right down to the point. You've heard of a woman's glory being spent on a downright cur. Still, you can't always judge the story as true being told by her. As long as I've stayed on this island and heard confidence tales from each gal, only one seemed interesting and truthful, the story of Suicide Sal. Now Sal was a gal of rare beauty, though her features were coarse and tough. She never once faltered from duty to play on the up and up. Sal told me this tale on the evening before she was turned out free, and I'll do my best to relate it, just as she told it to me. I was born on a ranch in Wyoming, not treated like Helen of Troy. I was taught that rods were rulers and ranked as a greasy cowboy. Then I left my old home for the city to play in its mad, dizzy world not knowing how little of pity it holds for a country girl. There I fell for the line of a henchman, a professional killer from Chai. I couldn't help loving him madly. For him, even I would die. One year we were desperately happy. Our ill-gotten gains we spent free. I was taught the ways of the underworld. Jack was just like a god to me. I got on the FBA payroll to get the inside lay of the job. The bank was turning big money. It looked like a cinch for the mob. Eighty grand without even a rumble. Jack was last with the loot in the door. When the teller dead-aimed a revolver from where they forced him to lie on the floor. I knew I had only a moment. He would surely get Jack as he ran. So I staged a big fade-out beside him and knocked the forty-five out of his hand. They wrapped me down big at the station and informed me that I'd get the blame for the dramatic stunt pulled on the teller. Looked to them too much like a game. The police called it a frame-up, said it was an inside job, but I steadily denied any knowledge or dealings with underworld mobs. The gang hired a couple of lawyers, the best fixers in any man's town, but it takes more than lawyers and money when Uncle Sam starts shaking you down. I was charged as a scion of gangland and tried for my wages of sin. The dirty dozen found me guilty from five to fifty years in the pen. I took the rap like good people, and never one squawk did I make. Jack dropped himself on the promise that we make a sensational break. Well, to shorten a sad, lengthy story, five years have gone over my head, without even so much as a letter. At first I thought he was dead. But not long ago I discovered, from a gal in the joint named Lyle, that Jack and his maul had got over and were living in true gangster style. If he had returned to me some time, though he hadn't a cent to give, I'd forget all the hell that he's caused me and love him as long as I live. But there's no chance of his ever coming, for he and his maul have no fears, but that I will die in this prison 
or flatten this fifty years. Tomorrow I'll be on the outside, and I'll drop myself on it today. I'll bump them if they give me a hot squat on this island out here in the bay. The iron door is swung wide next morning for a gruesome woman of waste who at last had a chance to fix it. Murder showed in her cynical face. Not long ago I read in the paper that a gal on the east side got hot, and when the smoke finally retreated, two of the gangdom were found on the spot. It related the colorful story of a jilted gangster gal. Two days later, a sub-gun ended the story of Suicide Sal. Getting back to the story, soon after their escape in Joplin on April 27, 1933, the gang was planning a robbery at the Ruston, Louisiana State Bank, but needed a second car to pull it off. In a search for another car to use for this caper, the gang was cruising down the quiet residential area on North Trenton Street in Ruston, Louisiana, when Clyde had spotted a new Ford V8 coach belonging to 30-year-old H. Dillard Darby, a mortician at the nearby McClure Funeral Home. Mr. Darby, who lived at the Brooks Boarding House, was inside enjoying his lunch. His car was in the driveway with the keys still in the ignition, which a lot of people did back in those days. It was a much more trusting world. W.D. Jones leaped from the slow-moving barrel car and made a quick getaway in Mr. Darby's automobile. Darby, who had witnessed the theft of his new car, immediately gave chase on foot. However, the car gained speed and then quickly disappeared from sight. Sophia Stone, a 25-year-old home demonstration agent, also witnessed the crime and offered to give chase along with Mr. Darby in her car. While chasing down W.D. Jones, the couple were intercepted by Clyde, Bonnie, Blanche, and Buck in the other barrow car. Clyde had asked Darby and Stone why they were following the automobile, and Mr. Darby told him it was his car and that it had just been stolen. Clyde grabbed Darby by the collar and forced him into the barrel gang car. Then Bonnie forced Miss Stone to get out of her car and join Mr. Darby. In the beginning, the plan was to kill the couple because they had messed up Barrow's plan to rob the Ruston Bank. However, after talking with the couple and kidding around, they took a liking to them and told them that they would let them live after all. Once in Arkansas, just outside of Waldo, the couple was let out on a desolate road. The barrel car had spun gravel as it departed. Darby and Stone were relieved that they were still alive after their ordeal. But just then, the car braked hard and backed up to the couple. This is it, they thought. They're coming back to kill us. But Bonnie handed them a $5 bill and told them to use it to get back home. According to an article in bio.com, Bonnie had joked with Dillard Darby that if she ever needed a mortician, he could do it. Upon her death, she was prepared by a mortician named Bailey. At his side, in the role as assistant, was, you guessed it, Dillard Darby. For the next three months in the spring-summer of 1933, the group ranged from Texas as far north as Minnesota. In May, they tried to rob the bank in Luzerne, Indiana, but it was a bust netting them somewhere between 300 and zero, depending on whose account you read. And here's how that holdup went. On Thursday, May 11th, Clyde and Buck cased the bank. Later that night, Bonnie and Blanche dropped the pair off and drove their most recently stolen Ford V8 out of sight. The duo broke into the building through a back window and waited for clerks to arrive to open the bank in the morning. Clyde figured that he could get the drop on the unsuspecting employees before customers arrived to interfere. 
Employees Everett, Gregg, and Lawson Selders arrived at 7.30 Friday morning. As soon as the tellers entered the room, closing the door behind them, the Barrow boys jumped out from their hiding places, ordering the startled workers to put their hands up. But this was 1933, and the rash of bank robberies across the state had made everyone jumpy. The bank managers had hidden a shotgun behind the cashier's desk. It seems that although Clyde and Buck were alone in the building for hours before the robbery, neither thought to search the place. Cashier Greg and the Barrow boys exchanged several shots, but no one was hit. The girls expected to see the boys running out of the bank, arms full of bank bags stuffed with cold, hard cash. Instead, the men came sprinting towards them, firing wildly over their shoulders, apparently empty-handed. Clyde jumped into the driver's seat and, despite his well-known prowess as a world-class driver, getting out of town proved as difficult as the robbery itself. Locals were out for their morning stroll as the car roared through the small town. One good citizen deduced that there was a robbery in progress. He quickly picked up a large chunk of wood and threw it in front of the speeding automobile. Clyde swerved into a nearby yard to avoid it. Another man jumped on the hood of the Ford and Clyde yelled at Bonnie, shoot him! She grabbed a gun and began to shoot, but failed to hit him. The brave bystander fled in panic, gunpowder peppered through his thinning white hair. Bonnie later told her family that she had deliberately missed because she didn't want to hurt an old man. By then, the whole town of Luzerne seemed to be descending on the outlaws. Guns were sprouting out of every doorway as nervous townsfolk took pot shots at the fleeing robbers. Trouble was, the outlaws were shooting back. Two women, Ethel Jones and Doris Minor, were slightly wounded in the melee. The women were luckier than the livestock, though. Clyde plowed his car straight through a pack of hogs, killing two of them, making these the only fatalities of the encounter. According to the official Luzerne report in the FBI files, the gang's getaway car was recovered in Rushville a couple of days later. Evidently, perhaps hyped up by their narrow escape, Clyde and his crew stopped into Indianapolis to do some shopping before leaving the Hoosier State forever. The most famous grisly blood relic associated with Bonnie and Clyde came from a well-known department store in downtown Indy. Clyde Barrow's death shirt came from Wasson's department store, located at the intersection of Washington and Meridian Streets in Indianapolis. Clyde was wearing a size 14-32 western-style shirt of light blue cotton print with one patch pocket and pearl buttons when his final day came near Gibsland, and you'll get to find out just what happened to that shirt and to Bonnie and Clyde throughout the remainder of 1933 and into the spring of 1934 in the next episode titled The Last Ride of Bonnie and Clyde, coming next Sunday night. In that episode, we'll take you through the fascinating story of the robbery in Okabina, Minnesota, for which the wrong group of small-time crooks mistakenly received life sentences. We'll give you the story of Frank Hamer, the Texas Ranger who finally brought them down, the gang's exploits in the action-packed final year, the ambush in Louisiana, and the history of Bonnie and Clyde's famous death car. And started leaking, and they picked Clyde up, and they went out in the country. Well, the tar went out on them, and they ditched the car. Then from there, they just kept taking cars. Now, here's where Bonnie Parker come in. After they killed this officer up in Oklahoma, they come back to Dallas, and they laid low a few days. Then they picked Bonnie up, and they, she took him out to uh, her aunt in New Mexico, state of New Mexico, and they were hiding out there, cool off. They'd went up town, and a sheriff saw them driving around up there in a new car. And you know, during the Depression at times, somebody in a new car, they, they was noticed. 
because there wasn't too many of them if people lived around in the farms or country that had a new car. So he followed them home. Well, they parked the car out in the front yard and left all their guns in the car and went inside. Pretty soon this guy drove up and he come up the door and he knocked on the door and Bonnie went to the door and he asked whose car that was out there. She says it belongs to a couple of boys here and he said, well, tell them I'd like to check his car. Tomorrow I'll tell them. And he went back to the car. Well, Raymond went around one area of the house and Clyde went around the other. And they had picked up a shotgun that they found in there and they went around and threw it down on him and, and unarmed him, put him in the car, him and Bonnie and Clyde, and carried him over to San Antonio, Texas. Well, they let him out. Well, now that put a federal kidnapping charge again, all three of them. And that started Bonnie's career off with him. Now wanted for kidnapping in addition to murder and a string of robberies, Bonnie, Clyde, and Raymond were truly outlaws. Floyd, unaware of the extent of Raymond's guilt, extended a helping hand. Little did he know it was his first step on the road to Alcatraz. Really, I didn't know too much about only what I read in the paper, about the different robbers and things. And he was in so deep when I did find it out, well, you know, it was really too far. The first bad publicity is after they killed this fellow up there. From then on. I'm home at morning, face full of brown. I know about that, baby. You've been running around. You, you made, made me love, love you, and you made me cry. You should remember that you were born to die. Thank you for joining us today with the true story of Bonnie and Clyde, Part 1. Born to Die. We'll return again in one week with the exciting conclusion. Meanwhile, you can enjoy our archives at 1001storiespodcast.com or find us at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes or Twitter at 1001podcast. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries is found wherever good podcasts are found at iTunes Podcast, Stitcher.com, Podbay.fm, and at www.podcast.study. Thank you, and thank you for listening to our show. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.